a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can join us for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a passage of scripture you've been studied that you're challenged with or an issue in your life or ministry that you'd like uh, biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859, area code 843. Or you can uh, email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at the call letters WAGP.net, TBL at WAGP.net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. I think we have a live caller who's already waiting. We do indeed, Pastor. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. It's um, in the social media realm, we've, we've always been seeing a lot of quotes from Joel Osteen and his ilk, and now I'm starting to see more and more things coming through from Perry Noble. And it just, it's a little disconcerting that people who consider themselves evangelicals will start listening to this type of person. It's just, I'm just, do you have any advice on on what I can say to to my friends to steer them away from from this type of minister? Well, you know, it's definitely a challenge in our day because you have more and more pastors using social media for good or for evil. And there's a lot of people out there whose theology is highly questionable. I think John MacArthur is absolutely correct in calling Joel Olstein a false teacher. Uh, I, I don't have any doubt about that. He is manipulated and twisted and remanufactured the gospel to suit men and not to suit the living God. Perry Noble has created a very dangerous movement in South Carolina. He has a goal of having 100,000 people in his churches, his multi-site campuses, across South Carolina, has plans to come to Hilton Head uh, this year. I don't know if he has started that yet. I know they've opened some new campuses already as they announced at the start of this year. Very dangerous movement. Uh, But you see, so many people today are just blind to that. They think, oh, you're just legalistic. And Perry Noble, he's a great guy, and you're just jealous as a pastor, and you don't like what he's doing. And, you know, that's the kind of feedback his membership will give, because those are the lines, of course, that he trains them with and feeds them with. But what he has done is he's created a model that is definitely in detriment to the body of Christ. It's antithetical to what you find in the pastoral epistles. But today, people don't know their Bible, and so they go to a service for a feeling. And if the service that a Perry Noble gives makes you feel good, then why? Why wouldn't you want to return? That would be a good thing to do. And so that's the sadness of our day. The best thing you can do is help people to know the Word. And and what's really tragic is that so many of these uh, small churches, 7,500, 150 people, they're just being emptied out across the state. And um, I, I blame partly the pastors for that because they haven't equipped their people well enough. 
uh, to know the difference. So part of that falls on the pulpit. Uh, when you have a, a congregation of baby Christians who have not been grounded in sound doctrine, then they are easily led astray. And this is why the Apostle Paul said that uh, in First Second Tim- Timothy chapter 4, he said to Timothy, his child in the faith, uh, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instructions. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate. They, congregations, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's our day. That's the day that we're living in. Entire congregations are turning away from sound doctrine and they're embracing really false doctrine or doctrine that is often incomplete. Very often you can tell what a person believes by what he doesn't say. When a man won't take a stance, like one Baptist church in our area, they say, well, we're not going to take a stance on homosexual marriage because it's too controversial and we don't want to split the church. Then you've taken a stance. You said it doesn't matter. You're afraid to preach against what is wrong and evil. And so sometimes, you know, like a Joel Olstein, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's difficult. But that's what a pastor who loves Christ is supposed to do. And when you have pastors who stand in the pulpit like Joel, who said, well, you know, I don't want to tell people about sin because they feel so bad. And so I don't think we should preach about sin. Well, then you can't preach about the grace of God or when you take the message and you just kind of bend it a little bit so that it's uh, presentable to people. And you have pastors like a Perry Noble who stands in the pulpit and he shares illustrations from R-rated movies that he's been to. What has he done? He's basically said to a generation of young people, it doesn't really matter what your viewing habits are. You can go fill your mind with junk if you so choose. Uh, Because I do that, and I'm giving you an illustration from the latest movie I've seen. That's the day that we live in. And again, the sad thing is a lot of these small churches are being emptied out, and they can't even keep the lights on anymore because they're drawing all these untaught, ungrounded people into the Perry Noble movement and churches like that. And and the work that they were doing, you know, like, to, for instance, in your Southern Baptist churches, they have a, a program called the Cooperative Program where they pool resources in a local church level. And those resources are used to help, say, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention to support some really good godly men and women who are overseas as missionaries. They've taken a hit in this state. Why? Because Perry Noble has emptied out those churches And those people who are giving to traditional mission causes uh, from the state of South Carolina are no longer giving because they're going to Perry Noble's church. But he'll tell you what you, oh, you want to have a glass of wine? Have two, he says. Uh, You know, have one with me. Um, You know, that, but again, Christians today, if you take a stance on moral issues or or you take a stance, you know, I'm I'm not saying it's wrong to uh, go to the movies. But it's wrong to go to a movie that breaks the pattern of Philippians 4, where God says the things that are true and honorable, right and pure, you know, let your mind set on things that are worthy of praise. You, you don't put your mind in the wastebasket. And when you put it in the garbage pail, 
to watch a movie that is dishonoring to Christ, then, you know, you've done what God says not to do. And the devil has a field day because he knows when our minds are compromised, our walk is compromised because the Holy Spirit who lives in the true believer is grieved and he can't fill that believer. And that person who was once maybe passionate for Christ and on fire for Christ no longer is. And what they've done then is they've replaced the filling ministry with the Holy Spirit with a feeling in the services that they give you. And it's a very feeling oriented service. So we need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to be in tune with the days that we're living in. We're not surprised because God said these things would happen and we're seeing them fleshed out right before our own eyes. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. Um, In a similar vein, um, Betty from Tybee Island writes, in light of all the publicity concerning the Pope's recent visit to America, how should Protestant Christians feel, think, say, and act? It appears that the Pope and those around him give him all the glory, not Jesus or God. They're kissing his hand, bowing, wearing white, etc. Does the Pope not believe that he is also, was, and is a sinner still in need of daily grace? How can he put himself in the position of forgiving sins or even saying what the sins really are? Aren't these some signs of a false prophet? Well, it's a good question, and it's certainly a probing question that people need to ask. Uh, In fairness to the Pope, he would say he's a sinner, so he wouldn't deny that. The, The question becomes, in Roman Catholic doctrine, is how do you deal with that sin? And really, what is the final authority in addressing sin? You know, when the Pope was asked uh, about six, seven months ago when he had his airplane filled with uh, press on one of the return trips in Europe, uh, what he thought about homosexuality. He said, well, you know, if someone loves and follows Christ passionately, who am I to judge? What does that mean? Uh, When he was here recently in America for one of his visits, his first visit to America, he met with uh, a homosexual male couple. And he didn't come out and say, you know, guys, what you're doing is evil. What you're doing is sinful. He greeted them and embraced them. And and then he distanced himself from the clerk in Kentucky who refused to uh, sign marriage licenses with her name on it. Uh, It appeared at first that, oh, he was embracing her. But then when it came out that he had even seen this woman... He made it very clear there was a distance. So uh, I'm really curious to see where the Roman Catholic Church is going to go on this issue. It's a pretty critical issue, this issue of gay marriage. Now, they officially say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And that, of course, is what the Word of God teaches. But they've got some but statements in there. And they just had a synod that met during the month of October and the Pope, of course, has the final say. So you had all these cardinals who were dialoguing over issues of family and sexuality and things like that. But the Pope ultimately has the final say. And I'm afraid that there will be some intermediate steps that will gradually move the Roman church away from even what they have taught, which was a biblical position on the subject of marriage and family. You know, it's like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn used to talk about the frog and the kettle syndrome. He said, if you take a frog and you drop him into a pot of hot water, he'll immediately jump out. But if you put a frog 
in a pan of cool water and slowly turn the temperature up, the frog will boil to death. And of course, he said that as a word picture back in the 1970s of where he saw America was going that we were just like the frog in the cool water, but the temperature was slowly being turned up. And you think about it. We've gotten used to some things that the Bible calls perversions. For a man to dress up in a woman's clothing is an abomination. We call that transvestite behavior. We call that Bruce Jenner behavior. Uh, that This whole idea that gender identity is fluid is absolutely ridiculous. There's no such thing as a transgender person. But Americans have begun so used to this kind of thing, and who would have thought that in the 1970s when homosexuality was a criminal behavior in all 50 states, that we would eventually say, well, maybe it's not all that bad, and then we would write laws that would basically endorse this kind of behavior. That's where we've gone as a culture. It's Romans chapter 1 being lived out. When they refuse to give God thanks or praise, they begin to move away from God. What does it take for a person or a nation to move away from God? Really nothing. All he has to do is give God no honor, no praise, no thanks. And we began to do that in the 1960s and 70s. And in the early 80s, we said, no, uh, we're not going to allow prayer in the public schools. No, we're not going to allow Bible reading in the public schools. No, we're not going to allow a child to pray out loud over his lunch in the public school. No, we're not going to allow the Ten Commandments to be posted as they had traditionally been posted in uh, government schools across America. See, things have really changed. People, uh, you know, who are in their 50s and 60s say, well, you know, I went through the public schools and it didn't seem all that bad to me. And well, it's changed. It's changed dramatically. So when we said no God, no praise, no thanks, then God gives them over to sensuality. That's stage one. That was the sexual revolution that we saw in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s because we said no to God. And when that is allowed to run its course without any check, then God gives them over to stage two where people exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And so we have seen the homosexual movement grow and deepen and blossom and develop. And when a nation basically says, okay, you know, we have no problem with this. And the people who have a problem with it are homophobic and they're evil. And when we start calling what God calls a perversion, good and okay, as people across the nation have done, then it says, and because they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Uh, Some translations say a reprobate mind. What's a reprobate mind? What's a depraved mind? Um, The uh, Slavic translations, all your Ukrainian, Russian, all the Slavic languages, they actually render the Greek, and I think they capture it well with a word picture, to an upside-down mind. That's when you call good evil and evil good. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And what happens? They'll be filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. They'll be full of malice, envy, strife, deceit. They'll be gossips. They'll be slanderers. They'll be haters of God. They'll be insolent, arrogant, boastful. They'll be inventors of evil. They'll be disobedient to their parents. They'll be without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, uh, they become evangelists for sin. 
they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's that's where we're headed now and as, uh, as an American culture, because we are now as a culture officially saying, no, we, we want what's perverted. Then God's going to give our nation over to an upside down mind. And if you think America is going to be a pleasant place to live, then you're deceived. We think, well, God's not really involved in the affairs of America. You know, God's up in heaven and he's doing his own thing. And when in reality, the Bible speaks here in this chapter about the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven, not the wrath of God that will be revealed, the eschatological wrath that you meet in many passages in the New Testament, but the present day wrath that God is giving to a nation. And, you know, you turn on the news, you know, every, every time I turn on the news, you know, and they cover out of the city of Savannah, like how many people were shot or murdered today? It just becomes a way of life and people kind of get used to it. And that kind of mentality and action is going to spread and deepen and widen across America. As long as we continue to say, no, God, no, thank you, God. That's all we have to look forward to. And this is why the body of Christ must be distinctly different in not like the world. God doesn't call us to become like the world, to win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that gives us a platform to reach them. When the salt has lost its savor, when salt is no longer salty, what good is it? It's good for nothing except to be thrown underfoot and fill in the potholes of the street. When the light has lost its light, what good is it? It's no good at all. So when you have the Perry Noble and the Joe Olstein movement that basically is becoming like the world, it's our distinctiveness from the world that really gives us a platform. So yes, the people are pouring in. Why? Because they like it. They like the message. It allows them to live a duplicious life where they can live for themselves and quote unquote live for Jesus at the same time. But he'll have no rival in our hearts. He's either enthroned as Lord and Savior or he's not enthroned at all. Anyway, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Uh, Placido from Westfield, Massachusetts writes, what ended up happening to Jephthah's daughter in Judges 11? Let me turn there real quickly. In uh, Judges chapter 11, uh, Jephthah was the ninth judge in Israel's history. Uh, There was a period of time when they entered into the promised land And if you remember, the people um, refused to obey what Joshua had warned, and they got far away from God. And so twice over in the book of Judges, uh, we're told that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so God ruled for a period of time through some judges. Some were good, most were bad. Uh, Jephthah is rather an interesting fella. He's um, uh, called basically the son of an illegitimate woman. But nonetheless, he's given a position of, of leadership and in the process of that, in trying to defeat a group of people who hated Israel, uh, the Amorites, he makes a pledge to God. And let me read that. He says to God, he makes a vow to God, a promise to God. He said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the sons of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. 
and he struck them with a very great slaughter. From Aurora to the entrance of Minif, 20 cities as far as Abel Karim. Uh, so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you are among those who trouble me for I've given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So he had made this vow that whatever he comes out of his house, he would sacrifice to the Lord. Now, did he literally sacrifice her to the Lord? Well, number one, the text never says that he sacrificed her. Number two, her response is telling. So she said to him, my father, you have given your word to the Lord, which she took seriously as did he. I think it was a foolish vow that he made. It was not a vow that he really thought through. And sometimes people make promises that are foolish in nature. But nonetheless, she recognized it was a vow and that he needed to keep it. And if it involved her, then she was going to be involved in keeping it as well. You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me, let me alone for two months. And may I go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity and my companions. Then he said, go. And she, he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept for the mountains because of her virginity. So he made a vow to the Lord to sacrifice her. Now under the book of Leviticus, the 18th chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, God expressly forbade any kind of human sacrifice. But it also gave the option that if a person needed to be redeemed for some reason, like the firstborn, that you could, for a um, redemption offering, uh, redeem that person, then dedicate them to the Lord. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So it appears that's what happened for several reasons. Number one, it never says he sacrificed her. Number two, she wept for her virginity. She was going to be dedicated to the Lord's service. And that would mean that she would never be married. She would be like those women who served at the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. I think it's the 38th chapter. So she would never be married, never be be able to have children and carry out that function. And um, in, in an addition, we are told in the New Testament that Jephthah was a man of faith. When God speaks of those who are in the hall of fame of faith, none of them are perfect. They're all flawed. Uh, But some really distinguish themselves by the faith they exercised. And Jephthah was a man of faith, and he walked by faith. And for God to include him in the hall of fame of faith, where he had actually committed child sacrifice, to me would be absolutely ridiculous. So I don't think that that took place And he was certainly a man who knew the word of God, because if you read the first half of the 11th chapter, um, he goes through a dialogue uh, over the Ammonites and why it is when he approaches the king of Ammon uh, that their land was not their land, but Israel's land. And he rehearses what Moses would have written in the Torah, the first five books. So he knew his Bible. And so for him to... uh, Uh, be involved in child sacrifice, then to be highlighted in the Hall of Fame of Faith, I don't think so. 
So you have to let the scripture interpret the scripture. It's not really here a mystery. It's really, uh, it's really pretty, pretty clear. Anyway, um, let's, um, let's go to the next question, Rick. And the number, if you're listening, it's 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. If you have a question, you'd like to call in, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Skyler from DeLand, Florida writes, what is the deeper meaning behind why Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land for striking the rock twice? All right, let me turn to the book of Numbers, uh, because that's where we find this particular issue. It's in Numbers chapter 20. So Numbers chapter 20, um, beginning uh, in verse, let's pick it up in verse 8. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, this is God speaking, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. So if you remember, there was another occasion when the people were thirsting and God did a miracle and God time and time and time again, every time the people of Israel whined, he met their needs just as he promised he did. And so the question this woman from Florida is asking, well, you know, why did what Moses did demand such a severe penalty where he and Aaron are not allowed to ever walk into the promised land? Well, number one, God had given a direct command um, not to strike the rock, uh, unlike earlier, but to speak to the rock. God was very clear, but instead he strikes the rock with his staff. So he disobeys a a clear command of God. Secondly, um, he takes credit for what takes place. Shall we, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Um, That's unlike Moses, because Moses is a very humble man, the Bible teaches. But in this uh, particular act, he lost his humility. And so shall we, meaning Moses and Aaron, bring you water out of this rock? So he he takes credit for the miracle itself instead of really attributing the miracle to God himself. And then third, you know, Moses commits a sin in front of all of Israel. And so God is not to be taken lightly. He is a holy God. And if there's anything that will overwhelm us when we meet the Lord in heaven, like Isaiah, we will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God. If there's one attribute that will absolutely astound us, it will be what we read in the Trisinian, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And so what they did in front of all of Israel God could not allow to go unpublished, uh, unpunished. And so he uh, allowed this direct public act of disobedience 
to have a forever public reminder. He said, you guys aren't going into the promised land. Imagine what that was like all those years wandering in the wilderness, you know, knowing that you're not going to go into the promised land. And then fourth, and I think maybe the most important, as we learn in the New Testament, and I think Moses knew this because all the prophets knew about Messiah and Moses was a prophet and he was not just a prophet. He was like a prophet of prophets. In fact, when God looks for an illustration of a prophet that will fit Messiah, he uses Moses because when Moses uh, speaks of the coming of Messiah, he said, God is going to raise from among you a prophet like myself. And so like the prophets, they preached Messiah. And I think Moses understood maybe a lot more than we give him credit for. But 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 reminds us that the rock was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Moses understood that. And this symbol of a rock for Messiah runs all the way through the Old Testament. And the rock that was struck once in Exodus 17 on another occasion um, was a picture of Christ who was struck once. Uh, Hebrews 7 speaks of this how his death was a once for in for all kind of sacrifice never to be repeated. So when Moses spoke to the rock in numbers 20, um, that's what he should have done, which would have been a, a picture of prayer towards the Messiah. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock and, and in effect, the rock is struck a, a second time in a holy symbol that God gives concerning the coming of Messiah is lost because Messiah is not going to die twice. He's going to die once. And so it was Moses' disobedience, his pride, his misrepresentation of Christ's sacrifice as pictured in the rock um, that brings such a harsh, harsh penalty. And again, it's, it's a reminder to us really of how holy God is. And we think that sin is no big deal and we can be flipping over it. But when we meet the living God in heaven, we will see what a big deal it is. And just because God doesn't always deal directly with his people in the same way, doesn't mean that he's not dealing with his people. The Bible warns that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The difference is, is when Israel was being disciplined as a nation, because they were in a theocracy, you saw it in a corporate way. You saw, you know, 600,000 people uh, traveling out of the land of Egypt. That's the men excluding the women and children. So two million people. And you would see at times where God deals with the whole nation. Now God disciplines us individually. He disciplines us one by one. And now God's people aren't all gathered together in one place like at the at Meribah. Now they're scattered all across the planet. But discipline is unfolding every day. And discipline, of course, is used both positively and negatively in the Bible. Just like there's some positive discipline that God does towards his children as a dad would towards his child and training him. There's also negative discipline. There's spanking. We just don't see it in such a profound way because it's scattered across the planet. But again, it's a reminder of how holy God is. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line and our next caller would like to know, how do you tell the difference between judging and correcting? For example, If you have a Christian who is trying to point out to another Christian that they need to change their behavior, how do you keep them from feeling like you're judging them? Is there a scripture that explains this? Surely there are. And uh, one of the passages that is often misquoted 
of course, is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, where it says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. From the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then he says, And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn them and tear you to pieces. So this is an important section of scripture that needs to be really handled as a unit. Of course, uh, I suppose there are, you know, three or four verses in the sinner's Bible, you know, Jesus drank wine. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Of course, a verse not found in the Bible, judge not lest you be judged. And this is a verse that unbelievers love to quote, especially to any Christian or even a non-Christian who is morally upright, who would take a moral position on an issue. So when you tell them, you know, to sleep with your fiance or to have a relationship with someone to whom you're not married is sin. Judge not, lest you be judged. Or you speak out against gay marriage. Judge not, lest you be judged. Or they start telling you about their so-called transgender child, and you say, you know, he's not transgender. If you want to know what gender he is, just look between your legs. That's what God says. God made them male and female. There's no fluidity in gender behavior. And, and, the, and the sad thing is that I even have to speak to something like this, but all across America now in public schools, they are setting up transgender bathrooms. And again, as we continue down this continuum long enough, it will basically come down to, oh, you want federal funds for your public schools in South Carolina? Wonderful. Happy to accommodate. Just make sure you meet the federal standards. And of course, um, they become very controlling. Uh, they will, I suspect, given enough time, say to the churches in America, oh, you want a tax-exempt status? Wonderful. Uh, Just have transgender bathrooms. Just endorse homosexual marriage. If you don't want to do that, you can lose your tax-exempt status. Well, I'd rather lose it than do what's evil. But that's where we're going. And people think, oh, that's ridiculous. That's what I said, you know, when I made statements like this 10 years ago, Uh, You know, I got some letters and people told me I was extreme, but everything I said 10, 15 years ago came true. Not because I'm a prophet. I'm not a prophet, but I read the scriptures and I read the pattern of what God says in Romans one and we're seeing it lived and fleshed out. So I just know what the Bible says will happen when a culture rejects God. So when Jesus talks about not judging He is, one, making sure that, you know, we're not picking at sin in someone else's life when we're just seeing in them what is in ourselves. Romans 2 speaks to the same issue. And so it's very easy to become harsh on someone else and to be very lenient on ourselves. But is this a prohibition against all judgment? No, he he, he says, first take the law out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take it out of your brother's eye. So there is an assumption that you will try to get it out of your brother's eye. Not to mention there's judgment involved in the statement he makes in 7.6, do not give what is holy to dogs. That involves discernment on your part. That involves evaluation on your part, that there is a, a moral standard of 
absolute right and wrong. And based on that moral standard revealed in the scripture, you're making a determination whether to give what is holy to someone that you think is a dog or a pig. Um, So then you have other passages like John chapter seven in verse 24, where the Lord, again, you let scripture interpret scripture. And we read there in John seven twenty four, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there's a command to judge. That's not contradictory. The command judge not lest you be judged is um, couched in a certain attitude in our own hearts that we're dealing with ourself before we deal with someone else. And here you have a direct command to judge not according to the outside, but to judge with righteous judgment. The fact that churches exercise discipline assumes that you believe there is a standard of righteousness. So Paul says, and this is consistent with what we just read in Matthew chapter seven, brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, someone's caught up in some kind of a sin entangled in it. You who are spiritual, again, someone who has a clear eye, they've taken the log out of their own eye. You who are spiritual, he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's an assumption in this passage that if we are a spirit filled, mature believer, that there's a certain amount of responsibility we have towards each other. That's part of loving each other in the body of Christ to speak the truth in love. That's what a husband does with his wife. That's what a wife does with her husband. When they see the one to whom then they, that they've been made one with in Christ and they see a problem, they, they address each other. They hold each other accountable And the same is true in the church. And so that's why God can say, if your brother, you know, is in sin, you, you approve him in private. And if he doesn't listen, you take two or three. And if he doesn't listen, you take it to the church. And so there are certain kinds of sins that involve a a public uh, kind of confrontation. It might be as public as just you and the person. It might grow to two or three witnesses because everything is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then if they don't listen, then you can take it at times to the whole congregation. So church discipline expresses itself in different ways and in different fashions, but it's clearly taught in the New Testament and we can't ignore that. So if I'm going not with a a spirit to condemn the person, but a spirit to really restore the person and put them on track, then that's a loving thing. And if they're not responsive to that, then you can't make them be responsive but you've done what God has called you to do as a fellow member of the body of Christ. Good question. Uh, 525-1859, the local number, or you can reach us at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right. Neil from Arlington, Texas writes, in your Romans 15 verses 1 to 6 sermon of the Roman series, you tell the story of the little girl who believed Jonah in the fish asking Jonah in heaven and the skeptic asking in hell. I tend to agree. I saw Billy Graham in Atlanta in 94 on a trip with some folks from CBC. He seemed to sincerely believe the gospel. However, when I was in Okinawa, I read the Time or Newsweek cover story interviewing Billy Graham sometime during 94 through 96. In the interview, 
He said he did not believe the literal story of Jonah and the fish. He said it in response to biblical criticism he had received over the years. In Lee Strobel's video, Case for Faith, he interviews Graham's evangelism crusade mentor, who Graham succeeded after that man ended up rejecting Christianity in response to criticism regarding what about people who never heard the gospel. Please comment about Billy Graham not believing the whole Bible. Well, one, I'm not sure what you're referring to when you saw Billy Graham in 94 on a trip with some folks from CBC, I'm assuming Community Bible Church, because I don't think that was the case. We were never there on a trip with him. But lay that aside, it is true that uh, there was a time that I'm sure Lee Strobel is probably highlighting when he, along with another individual, had to decide what they were going to do with the Word of God. And Billy Graham decided that the Bible was the infallible, inerrant Word of God and should not be questioned. The other man said, well, I don't think this is an important issue. And the other man, he went down south spiritually and got worse and worse and worse until his life ended in destruction. Dr. Graham took the position that the Bible was the infallible Word of God. There were two occasions, once on Larry King Live, and a second occasion when he was being interviewed by Robert Schuller uh, concerning people of other religions. And his answer was extremely weak, and I have to admit that. And, of course, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and and crucified him. It was not as denial as, say, a Joel Osteen answer. He didn't do that. But it was very weak. And I don't know all what was going on in Dr. Graham's life to give that answer on that day. But to his credit, he has renounced that answer. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association has renounced that answer. Franklin Graham has renounced that answer. And whatever was going on in Dr. Graham's heart on those two particular events, he has since renounced and reaffirmed what he has already taught, that people who've never heard the gospel are lost without Jesus Christ. And that's the biblical position. And by the way, this just raises a good issue about those who have never heard the Bible, those who have never heard about Jesus Christ. Uh, we offer a class at Community Bible Church. It's called the Discovery Class. And it's a, basically it's a 45-week course. And it's structured in such a way that a person can start any week they want. But there's one section of the course in this rotating curriculum that deals with the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. Questions like, how do we know the Bible is the only book God wrote? Every Christian listening to me should be able to give some kind of an intelligent response. And we cover that. In fact, I've written a booklet that has been published by Answers in Genesis, and you can also get it at Amazon. I don't make any money off of it. I don't write books to make money. I don't want to peddle the gospel. But in either case, um, if you buy it at Amazon, I go through five irrefutable proofs to show that the Bible is the only book God ever wrote. Uh, You should know how to respond intelligently to someone who says, well, everything you tell me is from the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible more than any other book? And then a question that not just Christians ask, but non-Christians ask, what about those who have never heard the plan of salvation? And that's a question certainly Christians should ask. But it is a common question that unbelievers ask. And sometimes understand when an unbeliever asks you a question, 
He's not asking from a sincere heart. He's asking the question to give you a reason why he's right and you're wrong. What we call a smokescreen. He's trying to prove to you that he can remain in persistent unbelief. And sometimes he's doing that because he does not love the things of God. That doesn't mean we shouldn't answer him because they need to see that we have an intelligent response to the kinds of questions that they are going to ask. And so we should be able to give an answer. And this is no small question. It really, it really uh, comes at the foundation of every major area of doctrine. It deals with uh, the doctrine of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Is Christ the only way to God? It deals with the doctrine of salvation. How does God save people? Can God save people through other religions of the world? Or can he save people uniquely through Christianity? So it deals with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It deals with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Is, is the church the unique witness and testimony of, G, of God upon the earth? Or can other religions of the world witness to the living God? I think not. God is very, very clear. I was in India just a week ago. And almost every place and business I went to, there were sacrifices. Blood sacrifices, they had slaughtered animals, put them in front of the doorway to their hotel, their business. The hotel I went in, in and out, and a hotel certainly not by American standards, even a Motel 6, it would be like a Motel 6 minus 20. If there's a Motel negative 6, then, then that's what this hotel was. And you turn on the shower, Rick, and there's just like this little dribble that comes out. And you hope maybe to be able to wet yourself. And anyway, um, just really ancient. But, you know, in front of that hotel, there were all kinds of flowers and coconuts that had been split in half and offered to these goddesses and gods that, uh, that during this festival week, to especially one pagan Hindu god that they highlighted that, you know, they would esteem this goddess. Uh, you know, is that a testimony for the living God? Of course not. That's a testimony for paganism, for idolatry. So the church is the unique witness. Um, Christ is the only way to salvation. So I could go through every realm of theology. Is the Bible God's unique book, because the Bible is very clear. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, but I am the way, the truth and the life. He's saying, I'm not, Jesus isn't even saying, well, I'm a good way, and there's other good ways. Jesus isn't even saying, well, I'm the best way out of all the other ways. When the article is used, I am the way, Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to to heaven. And if Jesus is not the only way to the Father, then he's no way to the Father. Think your way through that. If Jesus is not the only way to heaven, then he's no way at all. Because for Jesus to claim to be the only way to God and not be the only way to God, then he's either not omniscient, he doesn't know truth, and he calls himself the truth, and he's really then a liar. He's deceiving people. The Bible is very clear in passages like John fourteen six or Acts four twelve. For there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But what I'm trying to say is this is an important question. And unfortunately, Dr. Graham vacillated on those two occasions within the course of a year. But he came back and repented and apologized. So I give him credit for that. And he's come back as strong as he's ever had in the last 10 years. And he's taken, he took out a full page ad in the uh, USA Today against homosexual marriage. That was his idea. 
It was Dr. Graham's idea to start the crisis pregnancy movement. That was his idea. Him and about five other people uh, met in his home up there in Montreat, North Carolina. And they came up with a strategy to have crisis pregnancy centers across the America. Harold O.J. Brown and Dr. Graham and a number of people. So, you know, we, we, we can attack him in his weak moment. And, you know, and there was some time there, too, when Parkinson's disease came upon him and he wasn't thinking clearly. Fortunately, they've been able to moderate this disease that he has with uh, medication and he's able to think clearly. And for all I know, that was unfolding in his life then as well. But uh, so I'm not going to rag on him today. Uh, I have too much respect for him. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller says that beginning in Luke 21:10, the Bible says many things will take place such as earthquakes, famine, etc. But in verse 11, it says that great persecution will take place first. Are these verses for today? And have these events begun as we see so many weather changes and nations against nation, etc.? And we as Christians are being persecuted in the U.S. and around the world. Well, it's a good question. And what I would say is that this passage um, parallels Uh, some future events that Jesus also describes in a very similar text of Scripture, Matthew chapter 24. What we read here does not fulfill the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but a future event that Jesus also highlights, and he links to the return, uh, his return from heaven. So if you read, and we're going to be reading and studying verse by verse the revelation of John, really the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. It's not John's revelation, it's Christ's revelation to John. And it's not revelations, there's only one revelation. It's not the book of revelations, it's the book of revelation. There's one revelation that God gives to his apostle John. But we're going to see that he will actually describe these very events as coming to their peak during the time of the Great Tribulation. And so the verses you're quoting actually dovetail with Revelation uh, chapter 6, when the first seal is broken, the second seal, the third seal, um, the fourth seal, and so forth. And you see all these different seals that are unfolded. And so the first half of the Tribulation And then there is a point when it really breaks loose. And that's why when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, you better look out because what is then going to unfold is unparalleled in human history. But I would say this, that we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. The Bible is very clear on that. The last days is not something that's out there in the future. It's been with us since the day of Pentecost. But I believe that we are in the last of the last days, that the things that the prophets spoke of are unfolding very, very fast in our day. Jesus said, you better be careful if you meet someone who sets a date, because there are no dates given for the return of God's son from heaven. But he made it very clear, when you see certain things take place, look up because you know your redemption draws close. And Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that this day should not overtake you like a thief. If a thief breaks into your house tonight, I doubt he's going to send you an email this afternoon and say, by the way, I'm breaking in tonight at 3 a.m. No, it doesn't work that way. The thief just shows up unexpectedly and unannounced. If you knew he was coming at 3 a.m., you'd be ready. 
but he doesn't give such an announcement. And the returning of God's son from heaven will be like a thief. There was a famous movie down on the rapture back in the 1970s called A Thief in the Night. But that day should not overtake us like a thief. That presupposes that God's people should be alert and understand the signs of the times. So I think we're in the last of the last days, what some other New Testament passages refer to as the latter days. The latter days would be a way of speaking of the last of the last days. Biblically speaking, Christ could have come 10 days after the day of Pentecost. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus Christ to return from heaven. The rapture, the catching up of the church. True, the word rapture is not found in the Bible, but neither is the word trinity. In fact, the word rapture comes from a 4th century Latin translation of the Bible when Paul says we shall all be caught up. Raptora, rapto, in its uh, core form. And we get our English word rapture from it, from a Latin translation. But I don't care what you call it. The catching up of the church has always been imminent. And so when you read the writers of the New Testament, it's clear they thought he could come at any moment. Paul was right to include himself in the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. That was good theology. For he says that we who are alive, not you who are alive, we who are alive, Paul expected that it was very possible that he could be alive for the rapture. Why? Because the Bible taught the imminent return of God's Son from heaven. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, of which there is much to be done, then you know that the rapture that precedes the second coming is that much closer. So the Lord Jesus likened the events of the tribulation to a woman in labor with childbirth. So when a woman goes into labor, there are certain signs. One is, you know, she's not three months pregnant where someone says, is she pregnant? No, when she's nine months pregnant, man, her stomach's sticking out. You know, there's a baby there. Well, there's some sticking out signs in our day. You know that labor is getting really pretty close because of all the events that God is unfolding. And if you want to study these, come join us this Sunday at Community Bible Church as we work through the book of Daniel, which is really the key prophetically to understanding the revelation. But when a woman goes into labor, first her water breaks, and then the labor pains just begin to increase in intensity and frequency. Oh, we've always had earthquakes. We've always had famines. But you can expect them to increase in both intensity and frequency as we move towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe that we are beginning to see that. And we should be like really alert as to what is happening, not just in the United States of America, but now wherever you go in the world. The days of Noah and the days of Lot are being fulfilled before our eyes. The days of Noah were days of moral... Um, permissiveness in the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. Jesus said that was going to be the atmosphere for the coming of the Son of Man. Well, we're out of time. We answered most of the questions that came in today, but if you have a question, God willing, there'll be another Bible line and another opportunity. Bible line is reposted at wagp.net where you can listen to it online or download it into your phones. Have a great day as you work.